you know, I think I think everyone instinctively knows, and particularly at the moment, I think everyone instinctively knows that we have to do something different. But it, I don't think a big lot of shift will happen until we realise that we've got to have a bit of sacrifice to achieve the difference. That was David Marsh, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, and in this podcast series I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices and principles, and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an 8th generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners and anyone else who's up for a yarn, and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to the show. This week we, uh, we sp- we're speaking with David Marsh here in the Allendale Garden of beautiful Burua. Um, David is one of, uh, I guess, my favourite people in the world in that he helped me, one of the reasons is he helped me um, fine-tune my interviewing skills, I guess, um, over the last few years because um, it's here at Allendale where he and I uh, often meet and um, I interview him in the paddock and we chit-chat about all sorts of things. In this chit-chat, in this interview, um, we talk about David's um, life um, as a youth and as a jackaroo, um, his time here and his family's time here at Burua, um, and you know, touching on a few of the events that took place that, that uh, uh, kicked him off on his regenerative journey. Um, he gives some sage advice, I guess, about uh, to people thinking about um, transitioning and, and some of the things that one might think about in decision making um, and takes us on a wonderful ride through his, his career as a farmer, and um, which is definitely not over. Um, he's got plenty more to offer, and I suspect we'll be hearing from David in series two. And the interview was a cracker, and I've, uh, we've split it into two parts to make sure you can take it all in. So here's part one. And uh, I trust you enjoyed as much as I did. Here is the legend, David Marsh. G'day. We are at the in the wonderful garden of David and Mary Marsh. Mary has um, just, as David is demonstrating, <laughs> delivered a delicious cup of tea and some, you know, it's not Christmas, some beautiful Christmas cake. It just shows the, you know, the conservative nature of this family. We're still eating Christmas cake in May. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Christmas 2017. <laughs> okay, from there. <laughs> well, there's enough booze in there to keep it for that long. <laughs> <tell you. laughs> well, let's um, let's kick off, David. Uh, thank you for having us and being um, being one of our interviewees on the regenerative journey. Um, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Charlie. I notice that we're probably violating every rule of the. Social distancing at this stage. No, we are. Look, I've got my hand fully outstretched there, and it's <laughs> one point five meters at least. Um, uh, I just want to start by um, introing David, in so much as saying that my one of the bits of my little one of the journeys I've been on recently started here at Allendale, right? In regard to. Um, the filming of interviews and inter- oh, yes. interviewing you. Yes. You were one of my first victims. We've gone up quite a few gears in the technology, I noticed, that you're employing <laughs> well, today. Yeah. <laughs> we're a little more casual in that we're not in the paddock. We're sitting, yep. we're, we're being a bit lazier. 
Mm. Um, but nonetheless, the information will be as critical and as important and is riveting, David. The expectation is high. Um, so as is, the, uh, as is the name of the podcast, David, The Regenerative Journey, I'm interested to know um, at what point in your farming career or life your there were some changes in your your life journey <clears throat> but before we go there perhaps you might take us through uh what you were doing before that point in time you take us back as, okay. as far as far as you like because if there's some sort of little snippets of your life before a turning point so to speak you mm. know that may be relevant then we'd be we'd love to hear well i you know i i'm not that keen on saying this but i've been farming here for um, just under 50 years. What is it, 2020? 1971. <laughs> 2020 this year. Yeah. Uh, 1971 I arrived here as go. a uh, probably the sort of bloke who shouldn't have been let loose on a farm, I would have thought, actually, at the time. <laughs> Why is uh, that? I'd, I'd been away jackarooing for three years, three wonderful years. I, I look back on them with great fondness. Um, I left school at the end of 67, January the uh, February the fourteenth, I remember, I blew up a Volkswagen car on my way into Kunong Station at Yarana <laughs> and limped in there on about two <coughs> cylinders, and uh, that began a wonderful time of two years out on the Riverine Plains, which I loved. Um, not a lot of formal learning as a jackaroo. Uh, it was pretty much like learning to shear. You know, you you picked up what you could if you were observant. I hadn't grown up on a farm, so uh, I was hungry for absolutely everything that was going on. So um, I had two years there, and I, I uh, the manager there was a wonderful guy called Lionel Smith. I became quite friendly with his family and kept in touch, still in touch with his um, daughter down at uh, Wagga, and. Um, yeah, that was a. I suppose one of the things that's been a bit of a thread in my life is the forming of relationships with other people, and um, it, it was certainly an important relationship with Lionel. Lionel was an was a former army guy. Uh, he'd been a major, I think, in the army, and um, Kunong was owned by Sir Roy Mackay at the time, and um, Lionel, I think, was seen by the fathers of the people who were sent jackarooing to Kunong as a bloke who was going to knock their sons into shape. He had a, uh, a reputation for being a fairly uh, hard taskmaster in a way. But um, I didn't find him that way, to be honest. I, I, I thought, well, here's a guy with a lot of knowledge. I was keen to pick his brains, I suppose. Uh, I wouldn't have put it in those terms. But I used to, on a Sunday afternoon, he used to go for a cruise around the property in the Holden Ute and the... the, the, uh, the, the um, uh, the bet between Jackaroos was how many seconds it would take Lionel to get that ute into second gear when he started moving, <laughs> and it was under th under three mostly. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he used to go for a big tour around the place. It was a forty odd thousand acre property, so it was quite large, and um, uh, he'd do this tour every Sunday afternoon. And I often used to go with him and open the gates, so that was a really good opportunity to pick a few things up. But as far as learning about the economics of running a farm, no. Nah. Didn't get into the office. No, not, there was none of that. And I don't think it, I don't know anyone that went jackarooing that had that experience. We were out, uh, we weren't paid terribly well. We were there to learn. Um, there were six jackaroos, I think, um, overseer, a couple of blokes out at the ram sheds, a farming bloke, 
uh, the bookkeeper um, and the manager and some staff in the garden. So it was quite a little community. And, um, yeah, I, it was a revelation to me. I just couldn't get enough of it. And when <clears> – <throat> so that was your, I guess, the first little dose mm. of, of agriculture in that, in that form, and that would have been mainly sheep and – was there cropping there? A little bit of cropping, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, they had a bloke who'd been uh, – Lionel knew him. Lionel uh, spent quite a bit of time on a property called South Urana um, as a young man, and George um, Morris, who was the farming bloke at Coonong, his father had run all the draft horses on a big property down near Oakland's called Nowrany, and I think they might have had something like 400 draft horses. Anyway, George yeah. translated his draft horse experience into managing the machinery at Coonong, which was minimal machinery really, but sufficient to do a cropping program. George was very keen to remove anything that he thought was unnecessary on most of the equipment. <laughs> and, uh, what, like brakes and things? Uh, no, more like guards <laughs> and stuff like that, Charlie. But um, uh, no, he, um, yeah, it was, it was only a small part of the, the property, really. The main thing was a sheep stud, there were 20,000 stud ewes, and it was a, a, a medium to strong wool stud. A lot of big lot of rams used to go up into Queensland to um, Barcald and Downs and Inniskillen and the old. Um, the classer was a bloke called Wilf Pennefather, who was quite a fearsome character, big, tall man, looked like he'd had a couple of scotches in his day, but a very <laughs> uh, uh, well-respected re um, classer. And as the Rams would be going down the classing race, the call would go out, Inniskill and uh, Barcourt and down to Clark and Tate, and the Rams would be split up, and then they'd go up on a train, I think. So, yep, so that was quite an interesting experience. As far as, um, you know, what was growing in the paddocks, probably, you know, we didn't, I didn't know. Um, compared to now, and I'm absolutely obsessed with it, <laughs> I think I was, I was very, I think we've got a good grounding in, um, you know, handling good stock and selecting, knowing what to look for when you're selecting stock. That was pretty important. Um, wasn't a great social life. You had to hand your keys in. Car keys got handed in when you drove in. Um, we used to go into Urana to the Urana Lawn Tennis Club, which had um, tarmac tennis courts, and uh, that was the social outlet. Um, no grog on the station. It was a dry dry ship, uh, but we had a lot of fun. We were a good bunch of blokes and uh, good people to work with. And David, I guess an operation like that nowadays might have. Two and a half people running it. Yeah, yeah. It's been sold. Uh, the Holtz bought it when the Macaques sold, and um, they uh, they ran the stud for a while, but then the stud was dispersed. And uh, and yeah, there, there's um, I, I've been out there a couple of times, and uh, you know they had fantastic um, facilities for hand serving rams and had these big old. Uh, covered in sheds. They were originally thatched with lignum, which there was quite a lot of. There was quite a lot of big swamps on Coonall. And uh, they used to cut the lignum and it was done years before I ever got there, but then they put tin over the top of that. But, you know, when I went there last, I can't think how many years ago, probably eight or ten years ago, you know, they were sort of falling down. There were, mm. You know, nothing had been... That sort of maintenance uh, hadn't been kept up. But um, 
but yeah, it's run on with contractors, like so much country, run mm-hmm. with contractors and um, uh, the owners. The, the owner uh, Tom Holt does actually live there. So, uh, but yeah, it was sort of getting towards the end of a big era down in the Riverina. You know, a lot of those big old properties were split up and sold. You know, the Faulkners and um, uh, yeah. There were lots of properties that changed hands not too, not too long after I left there, really. And, of course, you know, the wool market was abysmal. You know, when I came to Burua, uh, you, 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 would, you had to get a top-up payment. You, you had to get, I think it was 32 cents a kilo for wool, and if you didn't get that, the government gave you a top-up to make sure you did get it. So it was, you know, a big, heavy weather. I remember selling... A big mob, or not a big, but a you know good sized mob, maybe three hundred big, big heavy weathers, hand and rig type weathers, to Jack Nunahu in Borua for two dollars fifty, and thought it was a good price. Each, each, yeah. No, it was things on the land then were pretty miserable, actually. So when you say then, where so nineteen seventy one, early early seventies, early seventies, yeah. There was the there was the um, the cattle um, crash, the cattle crash in seventy five. Yep. But there was before that. I think there was the uh, Ian Armstrong, our near neighbour, who got involved in a thing called the Rural Action Movement. Uh, there was a lot of unrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were ratepayers um, groups that were trying to get some rate relief. But um, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, not a lot of properties changing hands at Borough, as there isn't these days as well. But this property came on the market and. Um, um, my father had an aunt who was reasonably well off and had no kids and she left her estate when she died to dad and his sister. And um, that's how the farm happened. Um, it's a bit bigger now than it was then. But um, just to, I don't know whether we want to get into the, the values of things, but mm. it's quite instructive to think. We'll get into anything, David. To, no quite rules. instructive to think that really... Um, the marshes were considered foolish paying $114 an acre for this country in '66. Um, that was considered silly money. And I don't know, there hasn't been any, anything sold much around here, but, um, you know, you'd be expecting probably $3,500, maybe more mm. now if you were selling. Doesn't mean we've changed our position on the financial ladder, I don't think, but just the value of the dollars altered so much. It's an interesting um, thing to note, David, uh, speaking with Graham Rees there oh, some time ago about the value of land and the change, capital growth and so on, and you know, people saying, oh, well, if you, you know, your, your property's worth this much now, um, you know, are you making a return on it and, and should you be selling your farm and putting your money somewhere else to get a better return? And his argument, I hope I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing Graham, but was that you know, really you've got to look at what you paid for it. You know, that's the, that's the return you're getting on it in, in some ways. You know, that's that's a whole other, it's a whole another whole podcast series on finance and profit <laughs> and loss. There, David. Um, so that's not my strong point. <laughs> actually, <laughs> we don't have to go there. I'm glad you're eating that cake because the flies are about to take us mm. away there. Mm. Um, so 1971 landed here uh, uh, mid 70s. I know that um, Ian Armstrong and and John Carter and my father were involved with. With you know the cattle cattlemen's union, cattlemen's union, and and some 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 protests or sort mm-hmm. of that, that resulted in shooting some animals on That's right. TV and on yeah. the news. And where which, was that at Crookwell, wasn't it? At Crookwell, yeah, at John's, yep. at uh, Lake Edward, and mm. um, and that resulted in get, them getting a a, um, a meeting 
uh, with I'm not sure who. What might have been the might have been um, the premier. Was it? Would have been Neville Rand back then. No, I can't remember. David. Don't know. Anyway, someone. So that was yeah. that was that was the, the, that were the time. So you you were here then, and then you know, um, in farming as a, a Burrow farmer does. Well, um, yeah. I, I mean, did, that, I, I mean that comes down to what was the philosophy of David Marsh back in those days, and. You know, I, I think I was like every other young farmer. I was wanting to prove that I could uh, make a profit out of farming and do at least as well as my peers. Um, but it was pretty much all production-oriented, to be honest. Um, you know, I hadn't heard of... Oh, no, I had heard of the notion of um, conservation because my father, although he wasn't a, farm, a farmer, he was a wonderful... He had a wonderful garden. He, he had about four acres of garden in Barrel. And he had he planted a a, a very diverse um, area of Australian native plants, which he knew a lot about, uh, with a view to trying to get attract birds into the garden. There was a there were birds there anyway, but he wanted birds that were going to utilise the resources in this little plantation, and it happened. So, you know, I'd heard him talk about that, and he's always talking about compost, and he made a lot of compost and. He really, he was almost a permaculture farmer before permaculture had been coined as a term. So um, I'd heard that, but I wasn't, I probably wasn't interested in it, like a lot of kids aren't when their parents are keen on something. Um, so I was more inclined to see if I could grow another kilo of wool and get a few more lambs than my neighbours. And not that they were telling us how many lambs they got. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we had a share farmer here. There was a little bit of cropping. Uh, stubbles were burnt. It was the one-way disc plough. I remember the, the contractor, uh, one of his sons, used to be the main tractor driver, and uh, they had a Conachet 16 or 20 disc plough, I remember. And he used to... Um, uh, there was a cabin, actually, on that tractor, no air conditioning or anything. It was unusual for a tractor to have a cabin on, but th this one had a tractor... Had a cabin. It's very fancy. And uh, he used to have his girlfriend sitting on his knee, and and uh, she was quite an attractive <laughs> young lady. And um, and I remember watching them do the first lap around the paddock, and the clods were going over the neighbour's fence. That's how fast they were going. <laughs> so it wasn't great for soil structure, uh, but um, he was know, he was exporting, exporting, exporting soil. a bit of yeah, yep. We've had a little bit of it back over the years with dust coming back in. When, when droughts happen. But, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it was the time of, of um, showing that we had mastery over nature mm. and, um, you know, a lot of that was to do with um, subsidies that were given after the war to try and, um, you know, there was a superphosphate bounty, for example. You get a, I can't remember what it was, but you got paid a subsidy to put superphosphate out um, you know, that was seen as a wonderful thing. Um, when you look back on it, it created um, a short burst of uh, good stuff for a while, but then after a while, you know, acidity started happening. And, you know, the long-term effect of that policy is probably a negative, actually. A lot of people wouldn't like me saying that, but it is a fact. And... Um what was next then, David? What were you farming at the time? You we had, had we had uh, a self-replacing merino flock, basically. Mm. And um, like many, 
uh, we got we got caught every time it got dry. We'd get caught. Uh, we we you know we were like most farmers at the time. We didn't want to sell these things that we were breeding. We spent money trying to make better, and we're proud of our sheep, etc. Um, so when it got dry, we we got optimistic, like farmers do, and we we hung on and hung on, hoping for rain, and then it didn't rain, and then we were caught with too many stock in a drought. Um, that happened several times, and we went backwards financially each time that happened. And I didn't, I, I wasn't switched on or smart enough to work out what was going on. Actually, uh, I had no idea of working out how much grass I had or how long it might last. Uh, we. You know, there would have been wise farmers who'd been on farms for generations who saw it coming and started reducing numbers. I think further west, the further western managers were much better at that than in here. You often get out of jail in here where we are, but out west you don't. So they were very, you know, it was sell and repent, but sell. That was the mantra. Whereas here it was hang on and hope you get lucky. Mm. And and mostly you did, but sometimes you didn't. And when that happened, uh, that that was a big negative financially for us, you know. And I mean, the big drought we all remember, even though we we went through a nine-year drought from two thousand and two to two thousand and ten, and we're just hopefully coming out of a very nasty three-year rainfall deficit experience. Um, if you talk to blokes my age who were farming in Burra in the seventies, they'll always mentioned the 82 drought as the thing that was hardest on them. And the reason was uh, it was only a short drought, really, when you look at it, but uh, everything collapsed. You know, the stock market totally collapsed. Uh, you couldn't – there was a sheep sale in Burra where there was 3,000 sheep in the yards and there wasn't a bid and everyone had to pay to get them taken home where they probably starved. So that, uh, And the government exacerbated that because the farmers put a lot of pressure on the government to, you know, we couldn't. Uh, have this wonderful breeding stock that we all had falling apart through lack of uh, assistance by the government. Uh, the government caved in and gave a 50% subsidy to buy wheat once you'd used any feed you had stored. And, um, of course, we, we all thought, oh, isn't this wonderful? Uh, so we'll hang on to them for a bit longer and turn the whole place into a desert, which is exactly what happened. It, it was uh, actually the last 12 months are the only time I've seen Borrower looking as bare as it did in 82, but we didn't have nearly, we had a couple of dust storms um, in 82, but we had weekly dust storms for over the last three years. We, you know, when it was really dry, there was a lot of dust coming in, but also a lot of local dust. And David, you were cropping, um, cropping then. And a bit. You, a little bit of cropping. Yeah, but you did your fair share. You used to win the odd oh, I did, Hannah no, Minow Well, that was a little trophy. bit later. Yeah, I, right. I, I, I'm, I'm getting ahead we, of myself. No, not really. Um, yours like awards, Charlie. You like mentioning <laughs> awards, especially when you're the person presenting them. I'm going to get to yours <laughs> soon, don't you worry. But anyway, um, no, look, uh, I got frustrated. I mean, the people who were growing crops at share farm, I think it was a share farming deal, I'm not sure. But um, they were very nice people. But, uh, you know, they had quite a few clients locally. And um, I was the last. I was new chum Charlie, so I was, I was the last one on the on the on in the queue. And we all know that timing is pretty important when you're growing crops. And so I got frustrated with the fact that I couldn't get people when I wanted them. So I I didn't really have financial control of what I was doing here. I, we had a, it went through an accountant. who was an accountant my father had, 
who turned out to be. He was a very nice man, but he was really only a bookkeeper. And um, probably wisely keeping the brakes on D Marsh at the time. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I did buy some, I bought a secondhand Massey Ferguson tractor and a secondhand uh, shearer twin disc plough and uh, a scarifier and a, a combine for sowing that should have been put in the tip before I got hold of it. Um, and I had a bit of a go at farming and it was a bit of a, it wasn't much good. There were no chemicals to, to help you with weed control in those days. It was all cultivation and there was lots of cultivating going on. So we're, we're early 80s? Uh, uh, no, sort of mid-70s. Mid-70s, okay. In, uh, up to the late 80s probably. Mm -hmm. uh, it was mostly kept, mostly uh, cultivating, plough with the discs and then um, when you get a rainfall, put stock on it when it greened up a bit and then put a cultivator over it. So basically you destroyed the soil um, structure mm. and... Uh, because of the long amount of time that country was exposed to uh, the elements, uh, it was at risk of erosion and also uh, it, it, um, when there was moisture about, um, we thought we were conserving moisture, that was the, the idea of fallowing, but really when you do that and there is some moisture there, what happens is there's a lot of biological activity in the soil and it's burning out all the organic matter in your soil. Mm. So, um, you know, there was lots of, times when there were, you know, particularly when you, you'd had the cultivator over it and maybe the harrows and it was getting pretty fine and you're getting close to sowing and, um, and then you'd get a storm and or you'd get a storm just after sowing when the paddocks would be like billiard tables, you know, it was so fine and um, there was nothing to impede the, the water. It couldn't get into the soil because you'd destroyed the structure and so there were lots of, and we used to make light of it, you know, we'd say, you know, you'd be in the pub. How did you? How did your paddocks? Go? Oh, yeah, we had a bit of bit of wash, <laughs> a bit of wash. But it was it wasn't. Uh, we've had a bit of wash, and that's an absolute disaster because we're probably destroying soil a thousand times the rate it's been created. Uh, that didn't. That wasn't in the conversation at all. But we would have been worried about it, but probably downplaying its significance. And then, um, and then you. Uh Oh, I upgraded the machinery. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Got some better machinery. Because I used to see you getting around in some bit fancier gear than that. Oh, yeah, that was a bit later though, Charlie. <laughs> uh, no, we upgraded the – got a new tractor and a new plough and a good combine. And and um, I can't remember when things like Roundup came along. I think it was between the mid and the late 80s. Um, prior to that, really the only weapons you had – against weeds in a crop were, there was nothing like glean. There were no residual herbicides. There was um, uh, 2,4-D and stuff like that uh, for for controlling broadleaf weeds in cereals. Um, canola was, oh, look, at it probably started in about 75 or 76. Uh, yeah. I, had a, I had a bit of a go at it. It was miserable. Um, but... Um, uh, I was going to make a good point there, and I've forgotten it. But um, <laughs> It'll come back. But no, uh, the, we didn't make a lot of money out of cropping, I don't think. And we didn't realise, we were too stupid to realise that we weren't really making any money. We we were probably, if you'd asked us, or asked me then, uh, what was my point with cropping, 
it would have been to um, do something to uh, ultimately get a pasture sown at the end of it. That was that was probably the reason we were cropping. Um, but oh, that's what I was going to mention. Yeah, we had um, uh, uh, there were no, nobody. I mean, you couldn't. I, I don't think you could buy a proprietary boom spray back then. Uh, there was a guy at Moringo who had a boom spray that he'd made himself. And uh, I remember when Trefland first came up, he, um, mm. he used to fill his tank uh, and, um, and he'd tip the Trefland in and then he'd stir it with his arm up to the shoulder. Trefland? Yeah. yeah. That's true. It, it was for uh, controlling ryegrass prior to emerging wheat. And, and canola, I used to Trefland and then yeah. Harrow. And then yeah, Harrow, that's right. Create a very fine, yeah. you'd incorporate it cool. with the Harrow. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, uh, but then to get the 2,4-D on, if it was wet, you'd you'd get um, the aircraft and uh, you'd have a super bag so you were visible. And every time the plane went over you or beside you, you'd go another 20-odd paces or whatever the width of the swath was. And... Uh, was probably not advised to be doing that, but we did it. You were just with your with your um, yeah. Had a raincoat on, or dry you, oh, you did had a dry bone on. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you yeah, took I, that. I was no, going to say you might have been there with your terry toweling and your your the terry toweling hat was that was the the hat of choice. Yeah, uh, a great unless, absorber of chemical too. I guess on the <laughs> on the sitting there on the melon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But um, but even when I was a Jack Roo, you know, anyone who turned up with a big hat. We thought they were dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> the big hat didn't come around until we got rid of the Terry Towling and the, the white cricket hat. <laughs> there was but a transition from Terry Towling. I did to actually cricket. have a bloke. I, I had a, <laughs> an Akubra, an early Akubra, and a bloke uh, who, who was a very nice neighbour, fair, fair way up the road neighbour of mine, pulled up and asked me if I had the place on the market because <laughs> he said the bigger the hat, the smaller the farm. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, David, and so where, at what point in your your travels, so what, you know, where where was there a, a turning point, a, a pivot, uh, you know, yeah. what what events unfolded that that? Um, well, look, I think um, although I said earlier I wasn't really thinking about conservation, um, in the mid seven mid to late seventies, uh, all of a sudden uh, we noticed. We used to have a big problem with Christmas beetles and scarab beetles grazing on the eucalypt trees, and every summer they'd just be turned into sticks. They'd eat all the leaves off these wonderful big trees we've got, and um, and a few of them started to die. And we this property only had three percent tree cover on it, so it'd been heavily cleared. It would have been about twenty percent in its original state before agriculture. And three percent was was that three percent standard across Burra, wasn't it? That, that uh, fair no, I think the Burra, <laughs> remember the the Burra Shire, the eastern part of the Burra Shire has got quite a lot of remnant vegetation yeah. on it. Round here, very little. Mm. Uh, I think the total, uh, the, I think the the average for the district was fifteen percent. Okay. Yeah, but um, so eighty five percent of it has been cleared. Yes, which is a lot. So. Uh, we didn't have a lot of trees and we were worried about them dying. My father had planted a couple of plantations here very early in 66 and 67. Uh, I probably ignorantly thought privately without ever saying it out loud that that was a lot of effort and that why would you do that? Um, 
What, because you thought more trees, less stock? No, know? I didn't. No, it was just an extra thing to do. And I, I uh, <laughs> Dad had this tree plantation going down from the house to the road and uh, we had a rotary hoe and that was the deal was you were meant to rotary hoe the trees so the weeds wouldn't swamp them. And I was a bit resistant to that because I was trying to run a sheep flock and I thought it was, wasn't was real, real farming. So, um, however, um, when the we noticed trees dying, Mary and I went out and did some counts in a few paddocks where there were quite a few trees. And um, yeah, we calculated that at the rate they were dying in 70 years, there wouldn't be many alive. And mm. I had that was the embryo of a, an awakening of an ecological conscience, could I say. Uh, so we, we thought, well, we better try and plant some trees. Had no idea what we we're doing. And um, uh, so in 81, I think, was the first time we, we started planting a few trees. And um, I, uh, I established a few um, plantations, but they weren't that successful. Um, but I put, um, I put, I started putting these, um, the black polythene half inch drip lines on them. Yep. Which I've, I, I only did that for a short while. I, I thought that was the way to get trees to grow. Um, but um, anyway, I got the bug in the mid to late 80s. Um, I suppose in the middle of that period, in the early 80s, my father had a, a mate um, who who was one of the senior foresters in Victoria and uh, he was very involved. Uh, he was one of the one of the blokes who um, uh, kicked off the idea of um, whole farm planning and the Potter farmland plan. He was heavily involved in that. Uh, Bill Middleton, his name was, and uh, not the Bill Middleton from Vinealong. I was going to say of yeah. sheep fame. Yep. This was a tree man down in Victoria. I met him. He's a wonderful man, and um, he only died two or three years ago. Anyway, um, he sent my father a a, a a draft, I guess you'd call it, of what became whole farm planning, and I I got a look at it, and I thought, gee, this this sounds so sensible, mm. uh, because what it did and what the Potter Farmland plan did was it, in five years, they gave a number of farmers who applied to be one of the one of the Potter Farm planners, uh, planned farms. They gave them enough resources to fully implement what would take a family a lifetime to establish on a farm, you know, like they changed the fencing arrangement to fit in with the way water flowed in the landscape. They fenced it to capability, land capability. Uh, they did a lot of tree planting. It was, it was a great thing. Um, so I got a look at that and I, I went mad with changing fences. I've, I changed a lot of fences here. We didn't make any more paddocks. But we did fence to land type, I suppose, is what mm -hmm. you'd call it. Land class subdivision, I think I called it, mm -hmm. in the books. Um, and then uh, uh, so all through this time, we're sort of growing some crops, um, but mo mostly we're running sheep and a few cattle from time to time. And um, uh, But then uh, the, the problem with the trees dying kept on going until um, I suppose it was Joan Kerner really um, who kicked off Landcare mm -hmm. um, and then uh, through her influence 
and the Potter Farmland Plan probably had a bit to do with it. The, the CEO of the Potter Farmland Plan was Andrew Campbell, who became the first um, National Land Care Coordinator. Yep. And uh, now is the, uh, the the head guy of ACR, which is a cooperative project of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They do cooperative agricultural research with countries to our north, and we share in the we provide the resources and we share in the benefits. However, um, so uh, yeah, uh, and then that's uh, this amazing. Um, uh, conversation happened between uh, the federal government, Bob Hawke, I think, yep. and um, uh, the Australian Conservation Foundation and the National Farmers Federation, Rick Farley. Uh, just, um, I, I should remember the name of the Australian, uh, the uh, ACF guy, um, another wonderful man. An unholy alliance of people who probably wouldn't have had that conversation not too many years before, but out of that came this notion that we needed to look after the country uh, as well as make a profit from it. And so this idea of land care began and it it became much bigger than anyone expected, I think. There wasn't any money around at the beginning. Uh, we formed one of the early groups at Borua. 1989. 89, David. 31 years old this year, Charlie. And I think um, it's fair to say that we, we Burua, were. The, I think the first group was in Victoria that actually formed. Mm-hmm. If one was to go back through the archives, and I've been spouting that Burua was the second. And I mm. could. I'm yet to be proven wrong. But I'm well, going to run with. There it. were a few early ones. I actually got asked last year to go up and uh, speak at the 30-year reunion of the Burdick and Catchment Landcare Group. Yeah, right. So it's the same age as the Borough Group. That's in Queensland. Oh, they were a couple of days after us. Yeah. <laughs> but no, look, I, I don't know. Uh, but we were certainly quite early. Totally. And I can't take any credit for the starting of it. I was the first president of it. But uh, <laughs> I, I, no, I He's honestly can't. I, no, no. Uh, there was a school teacher here called Nola McEwen. She was a neighbour of yours. That's right. John's wife. Yes. And um, uh, she was keen on the idea. Mm. And Derek Mason actually mentioned it to me. He was the local uh, editor of the uh, local newspaper. And uh, we had a little meeting and the rest is history. But um, we had no idea what we were doing, to be honest. Mm. Uh, we thought we were fo- – why, we, why did we form a group? We, we thought we were forming a group because a lot of trees were dying at Borua. That, that's, that was the purpose and on that first – that first bit of the Landcare Group, mm. but the trees were actually a, an indication of a whole lot of other things that were going on that we didn't recognise because we were ecologically blind, I think, the whole lot of us. And um, What were some of those other well, underlying? Well, you know, uh, it was very tempting to say, like in the New England, uh, trees are dying, you know, we must find out what's causing it. Uh, and when you when you go to do that, uh, you find out that there's a multitude of reasons. It's not just it's too too simple to say it's something's killing them, the beetles. No, it's much more than that. And actually, what it came down to, I I don't know whether I was early in this, but um, I did read a lot of the research in the the New England dieback, etc. And I knew one of the ladies who 
who um, did a lot of the research up there. She was, I can't think of her name now. Oh, she was an absolutely fantastic scientist. Um, I'm very disappointed in myself that I can't remember her name. But anyway. Uh, we, we, can tr- we, can track, we can track it down. Track it down. Yeah. But um, so I begin to th- began to think, well, actually, it's, cha- it's the change in diversity in the landscape that is the root cause of the problem. And I don't know whether that was a, a such a, uh, a common thought at the time, but um, that's what I began to think it was. And when you think of it, uh, you know, in this district and in many districts in Australia, um, well, if you look at Europe, for example, in the de- development of agriculture, you know, there's 8,000 years of history there, starting off from a small population, starting to become agricultural people, uh, and then gradually changing the landscape uh, and society grew because of it. But here um, we turned up with a few ships in um, 1788 and 230 years later. In this district, apart from the remnant trees which are old and getting near the end of their lives, most of the ground layer of vegetation has been completely replaced in 230 years and it evolved here over several million years. I mean, that isn't... That's an astounding thing to contemplate, isn't it? Uh, now, I'm going to jump ahead in my thinking a bit uh, here because it, it sounds a bit depressing to hear that story that, you know, we kicked out the plants that, that um, we didn't try to kick them out, but our management was such that they weren't able to withstand the onslaught of, of stock grazing them constantly. And so they faded into the background in many areas, and this is one of them, they pretty much died out. When I started uh, what we're doing currently in 1999, we had one hectare of native grass out of 814. And um, I didn't I didn't really consider the, the enormity of that, actually. Um, now I, I've... Uh, we, well, we've got a lot of native grasses. Some we've introduced. We've introduced a bit of seed of species that once occurred here but have dropped out over time. But... Um, but we've done a bit of that, and that is spreading quite quickly. But it's also spontaneously happening, which is says to me that the ecosystems, because of the the sweep of evolution, have the capacity. Um, they have a uh, an innate knowledge, if you can call it that, uh, of how to be more diverse, uh, and that can happen if we change what we do. Um, so that sounds probably far too philosophical for a lot of people who are thinking about whether they can afford an, another tractor. But um, it's where I've got to in my thinking. I, I was I was very excited about the farming program on Allendale, and we did, as Charlie mentioned, we did grow grow a few good crops and won a couple of prizes for doing it. But um, I thought that was our best enterprise. But when I changed my thinking and decided to move in a different direction with agriculture, um, I, I, um, I had to put the enterprises that we were running here through a thing called gross profit analysis where you, you analyse each enterprise and you say, well, how, what's the percentage of our overheads this particular enterprise is covering? And the one that came out the worst was the cropping because it's so energy intensive and costly, dollars up front in a 
very variable climate. So uh, it proved to be, we, we wanted to get away from it any, anyway. I'd started reading a whole lot of stuff, uh, you know, an agricultural testament, Sir Albert Howard, and my father had um, Rachel Carson's groundbreaking book, um, Silent Spring, which I read. It came out in 1962. I didn't read it then, but I read it sometime between then and the 80s. And um, if you haven't read it, uh, I'd suggest it's worth reading uh, because it's it's an absolute wake-up call. But yet that was 1962. Here we are in 2020. That's 60 years later, and we've done very little to... There's a movement against the things that she was raising concerns over, as in, you know, the indiscriminate spraying of uh, chemicals and what their long-term effects might be on on life. But we haven't really got serious about it. There is a, There are groups, and I guess I'm in it, um, who, who are trying to show that farming uh, and letting ecology do what it is naturally trying to do, which is become more diverse, can solve a lot of the ills of things that we have thrown a lot of money and uh, toxic products around trying to trying to fix up. Um, so it uh, that's a big leap for a lot of people. Um, it's a hell of a leap for a lot of people, and it's not surprising that that it's not suddenly just happening. But I think there's more and more um, there's there's definitely more and more interest in. I mean, this virus that we're we're coping with at the moment is if it's done. It's done a whole lot of things. I think there's probably a lot of things we're not going to go back to, perhaps, uh, after it's run its course. But, um, you know, it's made people reconsider how they've been living uh, and how dependent they are on so many things that are high-energy products that maybe aren't that good for us or the planet. And, you know, I mean, you can't buy vegetable seeds at the moment because everyone wants to plant a garden. I mean, that is an extraordinary thing. It's a great problem to have, isn't it? It is. So um, I'm rambling a bit here, Charlie. No, I like it. You better like get me back on tack. No, no, no. I, I'm glad you touched on the, the, the pandemic. Um, I might go back to that mm-hmm. just to, to um, maintain some... Um... Distance? <laughs> Would you like to move another <laughs> metre sideways? To maintain some <laughs> chronological order there. Um, so, David, was there a was there a um, you know events um, uh, th- that might have made you you've had some you you've been reading some books you've been um, uh, been privy to a few things you your your um, ecological consciousness was was developing were there some events that um, you know really sent you in in a in a in a, mm. in a different direction. Um, at that time, uh, well, look, there, there were there were a number of things that happened. Um, I started having um, I started having contact with um, the university up at Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to bring farm planning students down here, and I got friendly with one of the the uh, uh, lecturers there, and he used to bring students down annually, and I'd talk to them, and then I had final year students from Sydney University coming up here and uh, I 
this is a, probably a little bit later because I'd, I'd probably done a holistic management course by the time. Or maybe I might have been just before I did the holistic management course, I had these students coming up from Sydney. And then I uh, went in a slightly different direction with um, trying to make decisions that weren't just economic and having more than an economic relationship with the landscape. So also considering the social part of it and the environmental uh, natural resource base, um, in, our, in all our decision-making, we considered all those three facets, people, business and landscape. Uh, and when I was talking to these students about that sort of thinking, it was completely foreign to them. Mm. And, um, and quite a number of them came up to me and said, you know, why don't we hear any of this at, at university? And it's a real problem uh, with education because it takes a long time to develop a syllabus. Um, and then nowadays, uh, you know, government funding for universities has been wound back very, very tightly. And so there's not a lot of research. Look at things like CSIRO, you know, they, they don't have a lot of funding for doing research. Core research at universities is funded now by industry. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're scurrilous characters, but uh, you can't help when you hand your, your um, university over to industry providing the funds for the research that obviously they want to pay off. I mean, it's only, they're running businesses. And so the research, the, the topics being researched get narrower and uh, the issue is that the, the people providing the money for the research want to have a payoff. In other words, they want to sell something at the end of the research. So the research topics get narrower. That's a problem, I reckon. Uh, you know, CSIRO, I was on a group once and one of the guys on it was, he was the head of the, uh, of the deans of soil science at all the universities in Australia. He's a Scottish fellow, can't think of his name now. Very nice man. And I was talking to him about this uh, issue with research and um, the CSIRO. And he said, when I was a graduate student in Edinburgh, he said, we used to hang out. We'd be hanging for the next um, research paper coming out of Australia, the CSIRO. It was just they were so innovative and that far ahead of anyone else. And he said, now they're ir almost irrelevant. There's so little effort going into that. So um, that's that's an issue. Um, so then uh, we, uh, Mary and I, had a child who was born uh, with a complicated heart, and we decided that perhaps <clears throat> we might be well advised to get closer to Sydney and doctors and stuff like that. And um, and so I hadn't, I didn't have any formal qualifications. So I, I sort of thought I'd better get myself if I'm going to try and earn a living if we're not farming, I better get some qualifications. So um, I, I did two things. I, I'd heard about holistic management um, and um, I'd heard about it in 1989. A friend of mine went to America on a Churchill fellowship, scholarship. Fellowship, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was looking at, uh, he came from just up the road. He got, had family, had two or three properties up there. But uh, they had a property um, way out um, at um, uh, Engonia, which is about an hour mm. north of Burke. Burke. And um, 
uh, a lot of that country in the early days was very open uh, country, but then it got started to get absolutely covered up with shrubs. And um, so this fellow um, did um, uh, did this Churchill Fellowship. One of the things he did was he it, it's a worldwide problem the encroachment of woody shrubs into semi-arid uh, environments. It's a worldwide problem. And it's a reaction to us and the, what we and what we do. It's a reaction to the way we've grazed those areas that were managed totally differently by people that we call primitive or have called primitive, but whose societies have been much longer than any agricultural society mm. that uh, that's been over the course of agriculture. So um, anyway, he came back with a uh, with a book um, written by this guy Alan Savory. And about the same time as he gave me that book to read, and I tried to read it, I found it quite hard to read. I didn't pick up on the ecological part of it, which was probably the heart of it, but I was very interested in the grazing um, techniques that this fellow used and the principles behind that in that um, uh, grazing plants uh, to mimic the way uh, big herds of diverse grazers used to graze in countries where they existed uh, without fences. And the, the, the thing that, that's blindingly obvious if you think about it is that they were moving the whole time, uh, whereas we tended to fence country, leave animals in one place conservatively, sometimes for their entire life. Um, now, the, that's okay, but there are huge consequences. And the big consequences are that all the perennial plants that evolved in these places where you do that tended to disappear and get taken over by a whole lot of annuals. And uh, that was pretty much exactly what we were dealing with and are dealing with in Australia in many, many areas still. So I got a bit interested in that, and uh, but I, I, I was sort of the 90s, that was, that was 89, I got that book, and the 90s, oh, sorry, I also enrolled in a, uh, the inaugural uh, sustainable agriculture degree course up at Orange, what used to be Orange Ag College, it was at that time part of the Sydney uh, University of Sydney, and um, so I was one of the uh, the guinea pigs, and um, we did a oh it was a graduate diploma because I uh, you couldn't go further than that until you had some sort of qualification. I had none, so I was a, enrolled in a graduate diploma, got through that, and then I. Uh, suggested I might do a uh, master's degree, which sounds very grand, but it's an extra year of hard slog when you're working full time. <laughs> Unless you've got a very generous family, you probably can't do it. Anyway, uh, my family were keen for me to do it, and it it was a very it was a hard thing to do. I got to say, it was um, I enjoyed a lot of the reading I did, and it opened my eyes to a whole lot of other things than just having an economic relationship with the landscape. Um, and um, so then um, um, uh, this wonderful young boy of ours, Matthew, uh, just to make life interesting for him, his cardiac problem wasn't big enough, so along came a, an abscess in his brain which was related to the um, poor filtration system of his plumbing of his heart and lungs, and um, he got an abscess in his brain which threatened his life, and he was in hospital for a number of months. And um, uh, so that, that sort of precipitated our 
our desire to sell up and we put the place on the market for about a year. I don't think we really wanted to sell. We were a bit half-hearted about it. We put it up for tender and uh, anyway, it, the upshot was it wasn't sold and the kids threw their hats in the air. They were very excited to be continuing on as Borough of people where they'd grown up. And uh, uh, that was in 86 that Matthew was unwell. Uh, and and uh, wait a bit, is that right? No, 96 that was. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, and then within a couple of years I did these courses and uh, started making holistic decisions. Um, so we've been doing that for 21 years now. Um, for half the time we've been making different decisions and doing things completely differently to what we used to do before. Um, half of the time uh, has been uh, below average, average rainfall years. Mm. Uh, and yet over those below average rainfall years, we haven't spent one cent feeding livestock because we've learned how to measure our grass, get the numbers right as the seasons start to fall apart and not get caught with too many stock. So uh, what has that meant? Uh, it's probably the biggest thing it's meant that people, we are starting to talk about it a bit now, but the, the unsung um, part of this story is is the effect on you socially. Uh, the, the level of anxiety that goes on in rural communities when people are up against it, their farms are blowing away, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars feeding stock. Um, that is an incredibly hard thing to cope with socially and um, let alone economically and environmentally. So um, not having those levels of anxiety, obviously we want it to rain like everyone else, but uh, it's very comforting knowing that your farm's not falling apart and that you're not you're not racking up this frightening debt. Um, now, the last three years have been very different um, from any other dry period we've been through. Mostly what happens is the livestock markets collapse and um, it's a, you know, it all ends in tears really. Um, but this time around, animals have been very high value the whole way through and they're extreme value right now because it's rained a bit. Well, mm -hmm. they were very high even before it rained. Um, so uh, that... In some ways, that's been a bad thing for the environment because the value of the stock has encouraged people to do the sums that say, yes, we can afford to feed them and it'll pay, and it has paid, but it's come at a very heavy environmental cost. Now, a lot of people now have put in um, drought lots, you know, uh, sacrifice paddocks, not quite so good, I don't think, but, you know, putting stock into feed lots and feeding them... Um, yeah, it's it's a challenging thing to do. Uh, you know, people have done it for up to eighteen months. Um, it's a pretty depressing thing to have to do. I think. Uh, I'm sure the animals aren't enjoying it very much, even though they're being fed properly. But um, we've found that uh, we we weren't really doing that well at farming economically. We we tended to be sort of marking time a bit, making the odd profit, but then getting a big move backwards when we get into dry weather. And since we've been changing uh, what we do, so matching our animals to the landscape, um, we've almost got no debt, which is just 
something we never thought I could I'd be able to I never thought I'd be able to say that. And I haven't really tried to get in that position really by thinking a lot about the money. I've I've I think it's happened because we've made decisions that are supportive of the environmental side of the uh, of agriculture and that means that your farm is incredibly low cost to run and um, and it's much lower risk. So, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, that's now being the, the term regenerative agriculture uh, has been coined. Um, you know, we thought sustainability was great, um, but it got everyone's, everyone was sustainable after a little while in every walk of life. And, um, and we, we as farmers have come to the view that sustainability is not good enough. If you've got something that's damaged, sustaining it in that state is not, it's no good. You've got to do better than that. It's got to re- be able to recover. And it has this innate capacity to regenerate. It's not necessarily what we are doing. Um, we're not doing something uh, to make it regenerate other than allowing it to. Now, I, I, uh, a, a few months ago I was thinking about this and I, I was talking to someone about this philosophical argument we're just um, discussing now and I, I said, look, I used, to, I used to see myself, this was back when I was a conventional farmer getting involved with conservation with land care, I used to see myself as the agent responsible for healing the land and there's nothing wrong with that. But now I see myself as someone who's observing the landscape healing itself. Now that is incredibly powerful thing for the psyche of a human being. I think if you if you can um, get yourself a bit ecologically literate and um, watch it happen, I, I found it incredibly. Um, I don't, I, I don't get excited and wave my hands around a lot, but it's something that does really excite me. I, I get a real boost out of going out every day and seeing what's going on in the paddock. Well, there you go. Part one uh, was a wonderful interview, and uh, you'll find part two of David's interview up next in the show episode list wherever you listen to this. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. And as the recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, Charlie would like to thank Landcare Australia for their support in the creation of this first series of The Regenerative Journey.